0: the 62nd psalm this is to the chief musician to jedithun a psalm of david truly my soul silently waits for god from him comes my salvation only he is my rock and my salvation he is my defense i shall not be greatly moved how long will you attack a man you shall be slain all of you like a leaning wall and a tottering fence the only they only consult to cast him down from his high position they delight in lies They bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. Selah. My soul waits silently for God alone, for my expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Surely men of low degree are a vapor. Men of high degree are a lie. They are weighed on the scales. They are altogether lighter than vapor. Do not trust in oppression, nor vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. God has spoken once, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. Also to you, O Lord, belongs mercy, for you render to each one according to his work. All right, our sermon text for today is Genesis forty five, one through fifteen. And this is called The Lord is Revealed. Verse forty five, verse one says, Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried out, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does not my does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, Please come near to me. So they came near. Then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth. And to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house. And a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him thus says your son Joseph. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. And you shall be near to me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty. For there are still five years of famine. And behold your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin. See that it is my mouth that speaks to you. So you shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and of all that you have seen. And you shall hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. Okay, you all know that this has been going on for a while, and this has been one long continuous picture of what's coming in uh, the future, but it, which is shown in the reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers. And today, that is actually going to come about. This, along with um, next week's sermon, are important in understanding the future events as they're going to be revealed in human history. It, it is really wonderful stuff that is going on here. For weeks and weeks and weeks now, we've been looking at this, this coming reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers and between Jesus and Israel. There have been so many matching patterns that it is obviously something that God does not want us to miss. It is a central theme right here and it continues to be a central theme throughout the entire Bible. But what we could ask and what we should ask is why? Who cares if God and Israel are reconciled? The Jews are about 1% of 1% of the population of the world. It's a little bit more than that, but not much. They are an insignificant number in comparison to the multitudes of people that are on God's green earth. And of the Jewish people today, we know very well that the vast majority of them aren't right with God. This is completely apparent. So why is this plan, which is pictured in Genesis expanded on throughout the Bible and shown to us in Revelation to be fulfilled there, so important to God and to us? The answer is painfully clear when we understand God's character and it is exceptionally important in how we perceive our relationship with him. Concerning his character, he has spoken a set of promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to David, and so on. If these promises are truly from him, And if the Bible is truly his word, then his very integrity is tied up in this book and the promises that it contains. If even one of his promises were to fail, then he isn't God, and we have our faith and our hope in the wrong place. And that brings us to the second point, how we perceive our relationship with him. If we believe the Bible is true, and if we believe that it was given to us by God who cannot lie, if we really believe that, then there are promises that we can hold on to and there are obligations which are imposed on us. If God's promises to Israel fail, then the promises to us are not trustworthy either. And the responsibilities that we have aren't really that important. You figure going out and making disciples really doesn't matter much if God doesn't keep his promises. Other than making maybe a lot of money through some false religion, there really is no imperative to do what Jesus told us to do. And this is exactly why the church so very long ago absconded with the promises to Israel. Israel was destroyed. There were only these pockets of scattered Jews, and it seemed to be that those promises had in fact failed unless, well, unless they now belong to the church. But so many of them were very specific. There were places, names, dates, and so on that were very specific. And so not only did they assume that the promises must be for the church, but that they were spiritual or maybe allegorical or even more stupidly perceived that they were already fulfilled. Yes, this is speaking of the past when in fact they'd never happened. The Lord says this in the book of Amos, the last chapter of the book of Amos, the last verse of the last chapter of the book of Amos. It says these words and it is signed. Listen to the signature at the end of it. I will plant them in their land, speaking of Israel, and I will no, and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. Now that obviously has never happened because that was written about 750 B.C. and they were cast out of the land from A.D. 70 until 1948. So how could the church make such a stupid claim? It's because they know that the God of the Bible is the true God. And so these things must somehow apply to the church, even if they really don't. This, this is why these stories and their fulfillment are so important because our very understanding of God, of history, of integrity, and of our religion are tied up in them. When you turn away from the importance of Israel, especially Israel of today, you turn away from a sound relationship with God. And along with that goes your solid foundation in those promises which have been made by him to you. This is the importance of Israel. Everything is tied up in God's promises to Israel. Our text verse today comes from Jeremiah 33. Thus says the Lord, if my covenant is not with the day and the night, and if I have not appointed the ordinances of heaven and earth, in other words, everything that makes this universe work properly, then I will cast away the descendants of Jacob and David, my servant, so that I will not take any of his descendants to be rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for I will cause their captives to return and will have mercy on them. Either the Bible is God's word or it is not. If it is, then it is absolute truth. Even the things that we might not like are the things which we dismiss because we don't understand them. But By continually digging into the word, we will be molded into a right relationship and an understanding with God. And so let's go to that word now and may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you as I most usually do. The first one today is verses one through five and it is entitled, I am. Verse one, then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood before him. In the previous chapter, Judah, if you remember picturing all the representative of all of the Jewish people, made an impassioned plea for his brother Benjamin. He offered himself in exchange for him because he knew that without him, his own father would die in the anguish of his soul. After hearing his words and seeing that there was a true change in him, it says that Joseph could not restrain himself. The word here is lehitepec. It is the same word that was used to describe him in Genesis 43 when he did control himself after weeping over Benjamin at the meal that they shared. There it said, then he washed his face and came out and he restrained, he restrained himself and said, serve the bread. This time the opposite occurred. Instead of being able to restrain himself any longer, he lost all control of his emotions. The Hebrew here is emphatic and it shows us that he was without any emotional restraint at all. First one continues. And he cried out, make everyone go out from me. Now, when we read this verse, at least me, I know this is true and probably most of you, because of the way that it's worded, we can't help but make our own mental image of the situation. And we're prone to make intuitive guesses as to why he would make everybody leave the room. Now, I've read this many times and my thought was always that he didn't want any of his servants to see him reduced to a state of tears. That's just, you know, what I thought and this is certainly true i won't you know the leader of egypt doesn't want to be broken down in front of his servants so i'll agree with that but the geneva bible added in another reason that i had not considered before they said it was because he wanted to cover his brother's sin Uh, that's two reasons now that was very interesting i i have to agree 100 percent with that and so i thought i'm going to think if i can think of any other reason why he would do this and the third thought came to my mind is that his true identity was only known to a select few around him. Revealing himself in the open would then reveal who he was to those who were not supposed to know. The question is, would that serve a positive or a negative purpose? Would knowing that he was a Hebrew and once a servant help or make things worse? If you can see this then in the light of the tribulation period, the whole world is going to be coming after the Jewish people as never before. Connecting them to Jesus in an intimate way would only serve to increase their troubles, not lessen them. The world has already rejected Jesus Christ by this time. The rapture has occurred. The intimacy of this meeting serves several purposes, and it is intended as a picture of the future as much as it is a picture of reconciliation of these brothers in the distant past. The tribulation also serves several purposes. One is to destroy the wickedness of the world on earth, just as the flood of Noah did, if you remember. One is to bring reconciliation between God and Israel. And another is to usher in the kingdom age where Christ is going to sit on the throne in Jerusalem and rule over the entire earth. Each step of Joseph's revealing of himself parallels this unveiling or this revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 1 continues, so no one stood with him while, he, while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And so with only the sons of Israel present, Joseph is made known to his brothers. Now remember, there's a famine in the land and the famine pictures the word of God, okay? The word of God is available, but it is only going to come at a cost. But to Israel, there is going to be a special revealing of the Lord. I'm certain that this is what's being pictured here. As this meeting is in Joseph's house, I'm guessing that the exact same thing is going to happen in the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, the temple. The Bible makes it perfectly clear, as I've said sermon after sermon, that there is going to be another temple in Jerusalem. Revelation 11 tells us that, there is no doubt about it. And so it is probable that what we are seeing here is something that will be revealed in that future temple. The details aren't clear, but the overall picture of what's coming has been given. He will reveal himself in a way which only Israel will hear. But as Jesus says in Luke 8:17, for nothing is secret that will not be revealed, nor anything hidden that will not be known and come to light. This message will go out. Verse three, and he wept aloud, and the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard it. The opening of this wor- uh, verse here is the word veyaten. It signifies giving something or putting something out. The literal translation then would be, and he gave forth his voice in weeping. In other words, loud cries went out. It was more than just mere sobbing out loud, but it was those deep gasps of air, which are followed by loud groans, which simply cannot be restrained. And if you want to think of a perfect example of this, think of a mother who's weeping over the casket of her son. You know that you you can't control the air and you're just gasping. That's what is being pictured right here. And Joel 3, which is written not about the past, but about the future, tells us a parallel to this. The first few verses of Joel 3 make it certain that they they are future verses. Later in the chapter, we read the following, which sounds like an incredible parallel to Joseph's revealing of himself to his brothers. Listen to what it says. The Lord also will roar from Zion and his voice, utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and earth will shake. But the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then Jerusalem shall be holy, and no aliens shall ever pass through her again. Joseph's weeping was heard by Pharaoh, which is the great house that pictures heaven, and by the Egyptians, picturing the Gentiles. The roar of the Lord will be so great that both heaven and earth will shake. The message will go out to the world at that time. And again, in Revelation 14, verse 10, we see the same thing. Here's what it says. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made the heaven and earth, and the sea and the springs of water. Verse 3. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. The astonishing revelation is now made. Until this point, they only knew him as zaphnath paaneah the Savior of the world. But suddenly the connection is clear. Joseph is the Savior of the world. Put yourself into the place of the Jews at the temple when this revelation is made. I am Jesus. Just imagine that. Jehovah is revealed for who he truly is. The Lord of creation is their own brother in the flesh. Concerning the words, I am Joseph, Matthew Henry shows the connection that everybody should make here. Thus, when Christ would convince Paul, remember Paul on the road to Damascus, he said, I am Jesus. And when he he would comfort his disciples, he said, it is I. Do not be afraid. When Christ manifests himself to his people, he encourages them to draw near to him with a true heart. The speaking of the name is the revealing of the person. In the case of Joseph and in the case of Jesus, the connection sparks the emotions of the soul. Israel will hear and their eyes will be open to what they had so long been blinded to. Verse three continues, does my father still live? His first question isn't peekaboo, surprised. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say also, why did you do this to me? Why did you throw me in a pit and sell me off to the Gentiles? Instead, to redirect them to something relevant and thus indicate his goodwill toward them, he asks about dad. And although it's formed as a question here, John Gill interprets this rather as a statement of fact. It would be like one of us saying, isn't that great? That Saying that actually means that it is great. The words are ha'od chai. yet my father does live. Gill's comment says that he puts the question not through ignorance or as doubting, but to express his affection for his father and his joy that he was alive. In a prophetic sense, then, this is seen as a positive statement from Jesus to those there in the temple. I am Jesus, and Israel is still alive. There's hope, and I'm here to provide it to you. This is certainly the message that's being conveyed right here. Verse 3 continues. But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. The word dismayed, I was thinking about it. It is appropriate here. They were literally shocked at what they now perceived. First, they were in shock at who Joseph was and the position he filled. And secondly, they remembered their crimes of the past. The comparison to Jesus is perfect. Those Jews who had for so long resisted him, but who knew the story of how he had been crucified are all true. This Christ isn't just a Jew, but the ruler of all things, and they will feel the guilt of the crimes of the past. I have not come to destroy you, but to call you back, you see. What is past is past. It is over and done. I am Jesus, your Messiah. Come unto me. I am your Lord and your brother. I am God's own son. Verse 4, and Joseph said to his brothers, please come near to me. The words of James, written to the 12 tribes, so closely matched that of Joseph that the Holy Spirit must have had this particular verse in mind that comes from Genesis. Listen and compare to what Joseph just said and what James says in the 59th book of the Bible. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. What James says here is so perfectly represented and it is so exactingly showing us what the Future holds for Israel that it cannot be coincidence. Joseph asks his brothers to come near, and Jesus does the same. In the act, the hands are cleansed, the hearts are purified, and the minds become clear. Verse 4 continues So they came near, then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Now, whether Jesus actually speaks words like this or not, the implication from the entire New Testament. And from the past 2,000 years of history is that I am Jesus, your brother, whom you crucified and then sold off to the Gentiles. Every sentence spoken is showing us what is coming. Verse 5, but now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. This verse right here is one of the finest examples of God's sovereignty and providence in the entire Bible. God never, never authors evil. And Joseph isn't implying that God was the cause of the evil that was committed. But God uses the free will choices of men, which include evil, to affect his purposes. The brother sold him, but Joseph said that God sent him ahead to preserve life. What man does, God knows will happen. And so he uses these things to bring about his overarching will. His brother sold him off as a slave, but God sent him as their savior. Jesus is written all over the story. Do not be angry with yourself, repentant sinner, though your sins were counted in the pain of the cross of Calvary, because through his shed blood, you are now a winner, a saved and cherished soul, loved by God for all eternity. The connection between this verse and what is described by Peter in Acts chapter 2 is a perfect match. There Peter says these words, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. If you see, God purposed it, but man did it. God's purpose for Israel in Joseph's ordeal was to preserve life. God's purpose for Israel in Jesus' trials was to save the lost. In both cases, man's wickedness was used by God for a good end. And uh, I have a little somebody to tell you about, somebody that I do mission work with every Sunday, Uh, Saturday, he has a friend that I used to attend church with. And this guy was a youth pastor, all right? And he did something that youth pastors are not supposed to do. It was really, really bad. And guess where he is now? 15 years in jail for what he did. And yet, during this time that he's in prison, he's been doing a great work for the Lord. Many people have come to the Lord. He's got a prison ministry. So God has used this man's mistakes of the past and actually willful mistakes at that, and he's turned it around for something good, and this is how God works. This is how he works in our own lives. This is how he works with the little thing I told you about before the sermon with what happened to me this morning. Something terrible happens on the way to church, and instead it could have been much worse on Monday morning, but God is always using the bad things in our life for a good end if we can simply perceive it, if we can simply grasp that, and it's not always easy to grasp, Dad and I had a real problem at his house this past week, and we were both stressed, weren't we? I mean, we were, we were in anguish. And then it all turned out perfectly. But you know what? God had worked that into what he was doing for us. You know, we got a little closer as father and son out of it. He got something out of benefit out of it, and I did too. And I met a nice guy in the process, and I got to tell him about Jesus. Everything, everything works out for good when we see God's hand in it. Our second thought today, all a work of God, verses six through 11. Verse six says, for these two years, the famine has been in the land and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. The Bible says that the famine of Egypt was for seven years. It also tells that the tribulation is going to be for seven years. However, nothing specific is said of anything in the tribulation that's gonna happen at the two-year point, okay? But these two years are past, and so Joseph is asking them to focus on the remaining five years. Five in the, in the Bible, as we've seen in many, many sermons, is consistently represented, representing the number of grace. While there is neither plowing nor harvesting, the family of Israel is going to be sustained by grace. And so the picture here isn't one of exact dating, but that the believing Jews who have received Jesus Christ will be sustained by grace throughout the duration of the tribulation period. And this premise is supported in both testaments of the Bible. The faithful remnant will be saved. It is hinted at right in the next verse, verse 7. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Joseph now repeats that it is God who sent him ahead of them to save them. In this verse, he uses the term she'erit. It's a remnant which will be preserved through the trial. God is always, always promised to save a remnant of the faithful people of Israel. And this is not an isolated concept, but one which permeates both testaments of scripture. And this includes the tribulation period, which is being pictured right here in Romans chapter nine, quoting Isaiah chapter 10, Paul says, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, think of six million Jews in the world today, the remnant will be saved. It is the remnant of Jacob who God will save, as Joseph says, by a great deliverance. This is, again, explicitly referred to in Scripture. Daniel chapter 12 says this. At that time, Michael, this is speaking of the tribulation period coming in the future. At that time, Michael shall stand up the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was uh, since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people Speaking to the Jewish people, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. The entire span of the Bible is pointing to the great culmination of the ages, and it is all being pictured right in this beautiful story of grace and reunion between once estranged brothers. The magnificence of how God has taken this and woven these accounts of Joseph into the accounts of Israel's history is astonishing. Verse 8. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. This is the third time now that Joseph has said that it was God who sent him. But the first two times he only used the term Elohim, meaning God. Mm -hmm. This time he says it was Ha Elohim, the God who did it. And in this verse, Joseph's exaltation and his relationship to Pharaoh are openly stated. This then, unlike before, speaks of Jesus' divinity. He's not only the crucified man of Israel, but he is also the exalted God of heaven. To be made a father to Pharaoh means, as the Jewish scribe Jarkey puts it, to have a share with him in power and authority. Even a Jew figured that out. He just doesn't think it's Jesus. As we, uh, So in Peter's quote in Acts that I gave you a little earlier, Jesus was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. But Peter didn't stop there. A few chapters later, he continued the connection to Joseph in these words. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him, God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Not a verse, not even a word so far has failed to point to Jesus, Israel, or the end times. And the exciting thing is that these pictures, and I say it week after week, and my hair stands up every week, these pictures very well may come to their fulfillment in our lifetime. That is how close I believe we are. Verse nine, hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all of Egypt. Come down to me and do not tarry. As suddenly as he revealed himself to them, he now turns his attention to his father. And so again, the characters have to be identified. The brothers are the leaders of Israel. They represent the individual tribes, all right? Jacob is Israel, the people, and Joseph is Christ, the Lord. Egypt is the land of the Gentiles, meaning it's the church age. The verse is similar here to what he said earlier. He tells them that God has made me Lord of all of Egypt. The brother sold him off to Egypt, but he said that God did it. And it was Pharaoh who elevated Joseph to the Lord of the land, but again, he says that God did it. In every word here, we see Joseph's understanding of the providence of God in all things. How different is that? You remember Jacob just a few sermons ago? He had completely failed to understand the reason for all of the trials that had befallen him over all of the years In this verse, Joseph said to them, "'Come down to me, do not tarry.'" The urgency of his words reflect what Jesus says in Matthew 24, which is speaking of the tribulation period. Listen to what Jesus said. "'Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation "'spoken of by Daniel the prophet, "'standing in the holy place, "'and that's at the halfway point of the tribulation, "'whoever reads, let him understand. "'Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains.'" Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor shall ever be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. This time that Jesus speaks of is future, and it is just at the midpoint of the tribulation, three and a half years into the tribulation period. This is the reason for Joseph's words, do not tarry. There's a time which is coming which is going to be worse than any other in human history, and Jesus will save them through this, just as Joseph is saving his brothers and his family through the famine. In his instructions, Jesus told them to flee to the mountains, And nobody is sure what that means. But many people believe that it will be to a place called Petra, which is actually in Jordan, which is a Gentile land. And if so, this then perfectly pictures the pattern in the words of Joseph. Verse 10. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near to me, you and your children, your children's children, your flocks and your herds and all that you have. Here, Joseph actually names the land where they will live. It's Goshen. The name Goshen, though, is kind of interesting. It means drawing near or approaching. Taken in the context of the end times, and especially Jesus' words, which are Matthew 24, the connection seems obvious. They are to flee because the great tribulation, meaning the last three years of the tribulation period, is drawing near. It couldn't be any clearer. Verse 11, there I will provide for you, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty, for there are still five years of famine, Joseph says again that there are five years of famine to come. These five years, representing grace, are what are going to be given to Israel during the tribulation. In Revelation, it says that the Israelites who take Jesus' advice and flee will be nourished in the wilderness during that final portion of the tribulation period. Our third thought today, Benjamin, the son of the right hand. This is verses 12 through 15. Verse 12, And behold, your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. Joseph tells them to trust their eyes and to listen to their ears. Their their eyes clearly see that he's not using an interpreter. He's speaking to them in the Hebrew tongue and it is coming out of the mouth of the Lord of Egypt who said that he is their brother and therefore it must be him. Benjamin here is being singled out because he's the full brother of Joseph. But God included this because he pictures those Jews who have called on Jesus. This includes implicitly Paul, who descended from Benjamin and who authored much of the New Testament, which is directed to the Gentile people. In other words, the Christ of the nations is the Messiah of the Jews. How did we miss what the Gentiles perceived? How could we not see that the Messiah is our brother, for so long, by our own eyes, we were deceived. Jesus is our Lord and Savior, he and not another. Verse 13, so you shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and of all that you have seen, and you shall hurry and bring my father down here. The glory they have seen is the glory they are to tell of their about him to their father. And the glory of Jesus, which will be revealed to the leaders of the tribes of Israel, is that same glory that they are to go out and to reveal to the people of Israel. The temple will stand, the Lord will come, and there will be little time to prepare. Now, even if these pictures aren't what God intends for us to see in these passages, they still reveal exactly what is coming according to the rest of the Bible. In other words, as I've said before, these pictures are exactly what God intends for us to see. Verse 14, then he fell on his brother, brother, benjamin's neck and wept the hebrew here interestingly says and he fell on the necks of benjamin the word is plural only one commentator mentions it at all and he said that it was probably that he wept on the left side and then wept on the right but that's still one neck why would god allow such an odd plural word here unless he wants us wants to show us something Benjamin certainly had only one neck, and so this must be intended to be viewed prophetically. Those Jews who had already called on Jesus and who remained steadfast in their faith, even before he revealed himself to Israel, are those who will have gained his greatest favor. As they are a group, meaning plural, he will weep tears of joy over them. Verse 14 continues, And Benjamin wept on his neck. And these many, this group, when they are shown to have been vindicated in their faith, will weep tears of joy over him. Therefore, the second time the word neck is used, it's singular. It's amazing detail that we see here. The Lord is revealed and over his brothers he weeps. A reunion so long anticipated has finally come about. Israel now knows Jesus and the covenant he keeps. And through tears comes the joy and a praise-filled shout. God's love for his people is eternal and sure. He has directed the ages for the sake of Israel so they can worship him in a way undefiled and pure, covered by the blood of Christ, as the Bible does tell. Verse 15, this is our last verse of the day. Moreover, he kissed all his brothers and wept over them, and after that, his brothers talked with him. And finally, in today's verses, we see the tender display of love towards all of the brothers. The transgressions of the past, The many years of separation and the trial which has just ended have all been swept under the rug of joy and of reunion and of brotherly love. They once tossed their brother Joseph into a pit and they sold him off as a slave to the Gentiles. And Israel once sold their Lord to the tomb and then sold him off to the Gentiles as well. But the reunion has arrived and what is past is past. Joseph and his brothers, Jesus and Israel. How can we not stand amazed at what God has done and what God is doing for his people, which are all pictured in these ancient stories? Though the details are many, and I know they are, and there's a lot to be learned in them, sometimes it might be more than we can grasp all at once. Understanding these early Genesis stories gives us a sure foundation in understanding all of the rest of the Bible. And the message is clear God has a plan, God is in control and God can be trusted. This is absolutely certain. And because God sent Jesus to save us, then we can trust that Jesus can really do just that. So please uh, ask you to give me just another moment to explain to you once again how you can be saved if you've never actually asked Jesus to do this in your life, how you can be reconciled to God through him. The Bible says that we have all sinned. Everybody here knows that you've committed a sin in your life. The wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. We've sinned, we receive death. And then God says that beautiful three letter word that I bring up week after week, but, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have failed, and He is still offering grace and mercy. And it says that if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. Well, that's kind of important to understand clearly. You don't call on a dead Lord. You call on somebody that's alive. And so the resurrection is implied in that verse. You're calling on somebody that went to a cross to atone for our sins. He took God's wrath at that cross. And then he came out of the grave to prove that he had no sin of his own. And so now we can move from Adam, fallen Adam to the risen Christ. We can go from death. We can go to eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, just insert your name there, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This is the message of the Bible, and this is why these stories are so important, is because if these stories can show us of everything that's happening in human history, then everything in the Bible is true, and if everything in the Bible is true, then you really are saved when you call on Jesus Christ as Lord. Do it today if you've never taken the time to do it. I have a closing verse to you today for you today from Isaiah chapter 62. Once again, think of think of Israel, think of uh Jesus, think of the res- uh, the restoration between them. It says, "Indeed, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the world, say to the daughter of Zion, meaning Jerusalem and the people there, surely your salvation is coming, your Jesus is coming. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him, and they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. Unbelievable. Next week, we're going to look at Genesis forty-five sixteen through 28. and It's entitled, The Spirit of Jacob is Revived. Once again, wonderful stuff, wonderful parallels of pointing to the future of Israel. That's our 113th Genesis sermon. I'll tell you, as I do each week before we read our poem and have communion, that the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. And he has a good plan and a purpose for you. So call on him and let him do marvelous things for you and through you. Today, we've got a poem entitled, I am your brother. Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who by him stood. And he cried out, make everyone go out from me. I say, leave us alone now if you would. So no one was with him, not a servant or any others at the time that Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud as resounding cries did emit, and the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence, and so an answer they could not give. And Joseph said to his brothers, please come near to me. So they came near according to his druthers. They came near to him obediently. Then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. It is I and not another. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life so that Israel does not disappear. For these two years, the famine has been in the land and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting for the farmer's hand. And God sent me before you, not by chance, but to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance to save you from the terrible times of dearth. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh, you understand, and Lord of all his house, everywhere I trod, and a ruler throughout all of Egypt, the land. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says Joseph, your son, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry to see your beloved one. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall to me be near, you and your children, your children's children, your flocks and your herds, and all that you have. Do not fear. There I will provide for you to keep away the fears, lest you and your household and all that is yours come to poverty, for there are still five years of famine from the heat and wind outdoors. And behold, your eyes tell you what is true. And the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. So you shall tell my father, making him serene, of all my glory in Egypt, both far and near. And of all these things that you have seen, and you shall hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. Away the missing years were swept. Moreover, all his brothers he kissed and wept over them, this he did too. And after that, his brothers, he had so long missed, talked with him many years they needed to review. This beautiful story of reconciliation and grace is given for us to see what yet lies ahead. Someday Israel will look upon Jesus' face and know he alone is their life-giving bread. For so long, they have missed the spiritual boat, but God has been faithful to them all along. Just as he said he would be in the book that he wrote, and some day over them he will sing a joyous song. And he sings over you and I when we to him in faith turn and seals us with his spirit for that glorious redemption day. It is for this marvelous moment that our hearts should burn and of this precious savior we should ever say, great, glorious, and awesome God, help us in thy majestic light to trod. Hallelujah and amen. Oh, heavenly father, It's just been a wonderful, wonderful journey getting to today's sermon and to the the blessing of the ages that your people Israel will once again call on you in spirit and in truth and will recognize you for who you are. Every word of scripture points to Jesus and they can't see it now. And I just pray that they will see it soon and that many will be saved. And I pray especially that many will be saved before the tribulation period because it's going to be a terrible time when lives are going to be lost. And uh, I just, I would pray for Israel now and that you would keep them safe from their enemies, which are hemming around them right now and that are threatening them. Lord, be with them and help them. And, and not because they deserve it, because they're not right with you now, but just because you are the covenant keeping God and they are your people from who Jesus descends. Lord, we want to look in anticipation in the week ahead to nice things coming our way and we would uh, ask that you would send them that would keep us safe from trouble keep us from harm keep us from trials but if they should come help us to remember that those things are also being used by you for a good end and that we can find something in them to praise you and to thank you for lord we just want to offer this service back to you as an offering and we want to uh, remember you during the uh, communion to come to reflect on you, and to glorify you and all we do in the week ahead. Help us to do that. Help us to be holy and pure in your sight. And we'll love you, we'll praise you, and we'll thank you for everything you do for us. And we'll do so in Jesus' name. Amen.